Today, like uh, Reverend Moura has said correctly, um, we will attempt to do a very challenging book, the book of Hebrews. Um, how many of you have ever gone through the book of Hebrews? Yeah, room of minor prophets here, you know, major prophets, you know, we, uh, the book of Hebrews. Um, some of you believe that it is the defining word of who should make coffee in the house. It says Hebrews, okay? Uh, that's not the only reason it was written, okay? <laughs> the sequel should have been Shebeks and Hebrews. But it's an interesting book. It has been called a letter, a letter to the Hebrews. In fact, between uh, maybe 400 AD and about the Middle Ages, the time of uh, the Reformation, many people referred to it as the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, but the earlier church before 400 AD uh, did not recognize it as a writing of Paul and even those who came later. Um, and, and the evidence that is within the book suggests that it was not written by Paul. It was written by a man because of some of the Greek uh, translations of the verbs. It means it's a man who was writing it. Um, he was an, a Hebrew Christian intellectual, clearly very acquainted with the Old Testament and, and very proficient in the Greek language. For those who do literature stylistically, it differs from Paul's way of writing. He doesn't write like that. Paul, in all his letters, would begin by identifying himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God to the Christians in Corinth, for example. Uh, but this particular author does not identify himself, and he doesn't even identify his audience. Um, there is no greeting within uh, the, the letter itself, which suggests that, you know, it was a completely different author, stylistically writing. But we know that he held authority within the apostolic church, in terms of the, the manner and the authority with which he speaks. But he himself, by his confession, as we read, you will see, because we'll go through it, um, he says he was not an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. He did not walk with Christ in the days of Christ when Christ lived here. And, and so he says what he has written is in faithful recording of what he had from those who had from Christ. So he was a little removed from the first eyewitnesses of this um, scripture, uh, the, the scriptures that he records here. Nevertheless, um, it's consistent with the gospel writings. It's consistent with the, a lot of the teachings by Paul and, and other New Testament authors, and it carries a real authority. One of the interest, uh, some people have suggested that it could have been Barnabas who, who, who wrote, a man by the name of Tertullian living around the second century, says that he is quoting from a book that bear, uh, the, the book that is written to the Hebrews that bears the name of Barnabas. So it's possible that Barnabas, who, we know Barnabas, uh, who was called in the early church the son of encouragement. You will see him in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. As you read about the fellowship of the believers, how they met together for the teaching of the word, for the preaching, for eating together, and for prayer. And, and, and Barnabas was one of those people who had the gift of giving, and he would give so generously that his name, though he was Joseph, a Levite from the tribe of Judah, I mean, a Levite from the, um, uh, from the tribe of Levi, um, he gave so much that his name was no longer called Joseph, but he was referred to by the disciples as Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. So it's very possible, having traveled with Paul uh, all those years, they were first commissioned, you remember the very first commissioning um, of a mission to Asia Minor uh, by the Holy Spirit, involved Barnabas and Paul 
where God says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And they were commissioned and went to Asia Minor and did some amazing work in Paul's first missionary journey. So it's possible he was the writer. Others suggest it could have been Apollos, who the apostle Luke himself, the author Luke, uh, the doctor Luke, says that he was a, a learned man and very proficient with the scriptures. It's possible he could have been a, uh, the writer. So the writer is not uh, known, but it's a possibility it could have been any of those. But as for the purpose of the book, which is really the point, the most important thing is that this author seems to be uh, captured, enamored, just mesmerized by the supremacy of Christ. So he has only one point in, in, in almost the entire book. To show us the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Almost to tell us, guys, let everything else stop. Forget about what you know. Forget about what you're doing. Forget about who you are. Look at Jesus. Look at how supreme he is as a being. Look at how sufficient he is for all our issues and all our problems. And let everything stop until we acknowledge who Jesus Christ is. And so throughout this scripture, because it's a fairly complex book, he's a very good exegete of the scriptures, so he keeps moving from the New Testament to the Old Testament. Well, not the New Testament, because they were writing the New Testament. They didn't even know that it was the New Testament. From his writings, he kept referring back to the Old Testament, and, and, and his references come particularly from a certain Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament. It was known as the Septuagint. And so his quotations are almost ostensibly from the Septuagint or the Greek Old Testament. And he's very well vast with it. And he keeps quoting. And therefore, you cannot read Hebrews uh, and not be acquainted with the Old Testament. And what he does is that he looks at what he calls the types of Christ represented in the Old Testament. The scriptures, the Psalms that will talk about Jesus and says, look at what this says about Jesus. And all of it to say, this is how superior, this is how supreme, this is how amazing Jesus Christ is compared to the prophets, the priests, the, 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 whoever it was in the Old Testament, all of them. Look at how superior Jesus Christ is. And so I will be inviting us to join the author to marvel with him at the enormity, at the magnificence, at the brilliance, at the supremacy, at the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for all issues that we are going to be facing. Whether it's a pandemic, whether it's joblessness, whether it is personal loss, whatever it is that we will be facing, to know that Jesus Christ has been presented on the authority of God as the supreme an ultimate solution for everything and anything we may ever need or ever require in this life and in the life after. I'll be inviting us to be amazed that such an amazing being as Jesus Christ, who doesn't need anyone or anything to validate his existence, is all-sufficient, To marvel at why somebody like that would consider us, people like us, lowly, sinful, fallen, of worthy of his attention. 
why he would stop his universal mission in order for him to pay attention to people such as us. I've been inviting us to be appalled by the terrible nature of sin, its extent and its devastation on the human condition. And then, to be eternally grateful that the only one who could do anything about it, Jesus Christ, in all his amazement, his supremacy, his beauty, his glory, his power, decided to demean and humiliate himself so as to seek a solution for the problem of sin, which no one had an answer to except him. And therefore, in that eternal gratitude to be convicted of the fact that we must adorn the same attitude towards sin and rebellion as God does because of what it cost him. That would be my invitation to us. And I say this up front so that when we get lost in the many references that might come in the future, we do not forget the objective of what we are trying to do. As we gaze at this amazing, beautiful, magnificent, glorious, kind, and amazing God, that we may remember how far he has gone in order to secure our future with him. To be amazed that he did not have to do it. If he condemned each one of us to hell. If he simply said to hell with you. He would have been absolutely justified. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God. A gift doesn't have to be given. But when you receive it that your response will be gratitude, joy, commitment, and humility in the presence of this God. So that as we worship him, it's not an act of feeling good. It's what we've witnessed here today as we were led by our worship leader. An act of utter humility and honor and joy to this God for what he has done. Amen? So then, to the book of Hebrews. Note that the author doesn't bother to introduce the book or himself. He dives right in. It's as though the matter is so urgent, there is no time to waste. You know, let's get into it. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Okay, right there. An acknowledgement that God is a God who speaks to his people. In the first sermon, 
of this year, Reverend Lorraine was preaching on prayer. Can you remember that? And as she preached, she said, do you want to be one of those people who says, God told me? You remember that? And you want to have the authority that you actually had from God. The fact is, God is a God who speaks and is always speaking to his people. Here, the author of Hebrews acknowledges that in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So he was not confined to a method. But in these last days, he has spoken. God spoke, God has spoken. God still speaks, okay? The big question is whether we are listening. Because God apparently has not stopped speaking to us. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Whom he appointed heir of all things. And through him, through whom he made the universe. Then he goes on to describe who the Son is. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So we dive into the deep end of who Christ is, the doctrine of Christ. So, he says there's a method that God preferred to speak to his people in the past. But that is not the method that God now prefers. In, in, he spoke to our forefathers through prophets at many times and in various ways. So there were dreams and there were visions and there were prophets. And they would come and speak to God's people. Thus says the Lord. But he says in these last days, there's a different preference. God has spoken to us through his son. So whatever has not been said by the son is not binding to you or to God. And to understand this fully, the Apostle John says this, in the beginning was what? Was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He, becomes a personality, was with God in the beginning. Remember that? Then he says, through him all things were created. Nothing was made without him that has been made. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. Then he says, this light shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not understand it. And then there came a man from God. His name was John. What did John come to do? He came as a witness to the light. He himself was not the light, but he came as a witness to the light, so that through him all men would believe. Although the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave them what? The right, the power, 
to become children of God. Children who are not born out of a husband's will or a human decision, but born of God. That's the testimony. And that's the link between the Son and the Word. The Son, the Word, and God are what? And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So, when God says that in these last days, he has chosen to speak to us through who? The Son. The Son was in the beginning. Here the Bible says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. So he's talking about the creator who was there in the beginning with God. And the word was God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That is the manner in which God speaks through his word, which has gained personality in the person of the son. Therefore, the word is God. And the son is the word. Okay? Tukopamoja. Nikukupoteza tafadhali useme tu. Useme tu, it's a free country. Okay? It's important to understand this. And let me read to you where that connection is important. And, and the book of Colossians is a magnificent place that speaks about that. And this is what he says. In Colossians, one of the most powerful words in the New Testament, the writer of the book of Colossians says this about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Because God is not visible. If you want to see him, then he comes in the person of Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were made, were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. So there is no realm that is supreme to Christ that doesn't is not touched by his creative power. When he says, let there be, that is called the logos word, the power, the word that creates, it creates rulers and authorities and powers and dominions, both in the visible and in the invisible world, including the angels. This is just to emphasize on the supremacy of Christ. So that when in future we claim we have a, 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 um, a savior in the person of Christ, you know who we are talking about. You know the extent of his authority. You know the extent of his power. You know that there is nothing outside of his realm to command. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. What does that mean? It means that everything, not even everyone, everything must respond to the will of God. Jesus Christ holds comprehensive lordship over all creation. Comprehensive lordship. There is no realm of existence that is outside of his authority. Not economics, not culture, not politics, not the church. Anything is under him. 
All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together or consist. So when you wake up in the morning, it is by the will of God that you exist. Those trees that grow out there, that grass, the laws of the universe, gravity, in him all things consist. They hold together. They answer to his command. That's the power and the supremacy and the amazingness of this Christ. And he is, hear this, the head of the body, the church. Breaking news. Your head is not your senior pastor, is not your bishop. The head is Jesus Christ. That is how amazing our CEO is. This one who created the universe. So in case you thought that the church is an afterthought, that you may either come to or not come to, or belong to or not belong to. This is this amazing super being who has created all things and in him all things consist, has considered only one institution, only one body on earth of which he might be head, and that is the church. That is you. And that's why at the consummation of the age, nothing else will exist. Not human governments, not human institutions, nothing. Only the church will be left. And Christ is its head. That's how important the church is. That is how crucial it is that you find your place in the church of Jesus Christ. That's how important it is that you make your contribution, your mind, your heart, your resources, Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your, your strength. That's how important it is. Because at the end of the day, it's the only body that will be left, the only one that will matter. Because Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. It's called the supremacy of Christ. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to him all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So yes, the blood of Jesus forgives us our sins, reconciles us to God, but it also reconciles all things to God, both on earth and in heaven. I wanted you to hear that. We'll come back to that gospel a little later. On to Hebrews. Um, it, it, I'll keep referring back and forth. But I want you to capture the supremacy of Christ. If we don't do anything else today, let's understand who Christ is. And what he has done for us. So that we will appreciate how critical and crucial this relationship is. And why we must guard it and guide it with everything that we have. So the sun is the radiance of God's glory. So he finishes to say, whom, um, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So he is creator. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
So just like you cannot uh, separate the brilliance of the sun from the sun itself, we are told that the sun is the exact representation of God and is the brilliance or the glory, the radiance of God the Father. So that when you see Jesus Christ, you do see God. The radiance of God's glory as it shines through the sun. He says he is the exact representation. So he's not a substitute. He's not a human being like you and I. He is God who then takes the form of man to come and pay a penalty that he didn't have to. After he had provided purification for sin, the reason why the word became flesh and dwelt among us is so that he could wear our weakness, walk where we walk, be tempted as we are, you know he was tempted, as we are, yet without sin, so that when he appears before God the Father and says, Father, forgive them. I've been where they are. I know where they are at. Forgive them. He can intercede for you and I because he understands in the way that no one else does. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The act of sitting down means that he is now ruling at the right hand of the Father. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now for all, most Old Testament believers uh, whom were the target audience for the writer of Hebrews, um, the ultimate revelation was whatever was brought by angels. So that, for example, Moses saw the angel of the Lord in the burning bush because the angel of the Lord was in the flames and he addressed Moses. So the covenant that came through Moses was mediated by an angel of the Lord and it became the Old Testament. And so here, the writer is trying to tell us, you know, that he became as much superior to the angels as the name that he inherited is superior to theirs. So he's telling us, I know you guys think that the angels are all that, but guess what? This one is even more supreme. It's even more amazing than the angels. Then he begins an interesting dialogue. He will pick um, a very interesting exegetical method where he will go to specific texts which he will now uh, delineate as messianic, referring to the messiah. And then tell them, this is what God says about angels. This is what he says about his son. Compare and contrast. Who is the supreme being here? So he wants us to grasp how superior Jesus Christ is. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Quoting Psalm 2 and verse 7. Or again, I will be your father and he... I will be his father, and he will be my son. This second one is interesting because it comes from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, if you have an NIV, it gives you a footnote there to reference that. It will be good whenever you're doing that to go back and forth and read what is the context of that. Uh, because part of the authority of the New Testament authors is that they had authority to tell you this is what this means. You know, And so in this particular text, this is a conversation between David um, and, and Samuel. And David wants to build a house for the Lord. 
And he says, you know, I, I, I feel guilt, guilt, guilt stricken. How can I be dwelling in a palace of cedar while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is out on a tent? I want to build a house for the house of my God. Very noble intentions. And then they have a conversation. And then the, 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 the prophet ultimately say, okay, whatever you have in your hands to do, that do, because the Lord is with you. But before he leaves the court, God sends him back. Go to back to my servant David and ask him, all this time when I've been around, have I ever asked you to build me a house? Like, whoa, okay. Just a house, Lord, you know? Then he says, no. Um, he reminds David what he has done for him. David, I took you from among the sheep where you used to whatever. I appointed you to be leader of my people Israel. I've done this for you. I've done the other for you. Now, this is what I'm also going to do for you. I will build a house for you. You want to build a house for me? You can't. I will build a house for you. Okay? And then he says, you know, I will establish your throne. And, and when you have rested with your fathers and you have died, then I will raise one of your offspring, your own flesh and blood. And he's the one who will build a house for me. I will be his father he will be my son. So this is what he's quoting here. So that's, that's the context of, of the conversation. Apparently, this is a partial prophecy. It, it finds its partial fulfillment in Solomon, who then becomes, in a sense, a forerunner of the soon coming Christ, most wise, most wealthy, all that, you know. But he's in the Davidic line. All right? And so partial fulfillment in Solomon, he becomes, God becomes his father, looks after him, etc., etc. And even though God would be angry with Solomon in the, in, in the later days, he says, when, he's, when I'm angry with him, I'll chastise him with the rods of men. But he'll say, I will never remove my love for him. I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. So clearly he's not talking about Solomon at that point. So the fulfillment of this prophecy finds its final resting place in the man, Jesus Christ, who is now the true son of God, who will do God's will and whose throne will never end and who himself would be addressed as God. So the author will keep doing that. He will take some of those we call the messianic texts and apply them to Jesus Christ. So in this particular context, that's what he's doing. Um, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says... Let all God's angels worship him. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy 32 and 43. And says, this refers to Jesus Christ because who else can angels worship? Again, he's talking to Jews. To them, angels are the supreme beings uh, in terms of, of, of God's own, um, you know, uh, progression and everything. And now he says, you know, um, I, I am going to be, uh, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Lastly, he says, he also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. He's trying to remind us this is the creator and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same, and your ears will never, ever end. To which of the angels did God say, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So that is his entire conclusion. That this is who Christ is. This is how supreme he is. He's supreme to the angels. He is supreme to the Old Testament uh, covenants. In fact, all the covenants and all the promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so today, I do want to invite you to consider the supremacy of Christ and his all sufficiency in terms of dealing with whatever problem that you may have or whatever situation that you may be facing. Because once you know the superiority of Christ, his supremacy and his sufficiency, then you will not lose sleep because he has been to your future, a future that you've never been into. He knows your present. He knows your circumstances. He knows what you're facing today. He knows what you'll be facing at the end of 2021. He knows who will be president in 2022. So he's not worried. And neither should you be. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. We will continue the study of the book of Hebrews. Um, I challenge you, go back and read that text. If you've never read the book of Hebrews before, please read it. So that as we are reading it together, some of those things that will pop out will amaze you at who Christ is. And as we make comparisons and realize what extent this God has gone in order to make our life and our eternity secure in him, in Jesus' name. Amen? God bless you.